Hello and welcome to episode 8 of Gather Round, the podcast series sharing stories from Aberdeen Archives Gallery and Museums. In this episode, we have three guests talking about Aberdeen Art Gallery's current exhibition, Gerwood Art Fund Makers Open. Our three guests today are Svetlana Panova, who is curator and project coordinator of the exhibition, artist Cecilia Charlton, whose work in the show is a human-sized abstract triptych of Bargello embroideries inspired by the Greek myth of the three fates who spin a lot and cut the thread of life, and Morna Annandale, one of our applied art curators. They'll be talking about Cecilia's work along with themes and thoughts of how it was put together. My name is Svetlana Panova. I'm the curator and project coordinator for Gerwood Art Fund Makers Open, and I'm here with two very exciting um, guests, uh, and we'll get into the nitty-gritty of some of the works in the show and some of the themes and thoughts that have gone into putting it together. But I'll just pass it on to my guests to uh, introduce themselves now. Hello, my name is Morna Annandale um, and I'm a curator at Aberdeen Archives Gallery and Museums and I look after our applied art collection, including ceramics, glass, metalwork, jewellery, costume and textiles. And I'm Cecilia Charlton. I'm a fine artist based in London. I create works with textile processes that then are presented as paintings, utilizing pattern to approach abstract ideas. And I'm exhibiting at the Aberdeen Art Gallery at the moment as part of the Gerwood Art Fund Makers Open. So let's start at the very beginning. What is Gerwood Art Fund Makers Open? It's a biannual commissioning opportunity for early career artists and makers based in the UK. They are selected through an open call that seeks proposals for ambitious projects from practitioners in the early stages in their careers. And we roughly define that by 10 years from starting their practices. The commission gives the opportunity to learn, take risks, experiment and take the next step in the artist's professional development with substantial curatorial and financial support and essentially gives them the opportunity to make the work that they've always wanted to make or it's important to make at this stage in their careers. We received more than 500 applications out of which we selected five commissions and six artists. They were selected by an expert panel which included Dame Magdalene Ujundo Potter, Yinka Lori, artist and designer, Junkamori artist and maker in metal, Christian Rue, former Art Gallery Museum's manager here at Aberdeen Art Gallery, and Harriet Cooper, former head of visual arts at Gerwood Arts. So a really great mix of practicing artists and professionals, and then members of the institutions that were involved in the project. Gerwood Makers Open was established in 2010, and this is its eighth edition. It was created to recognize and promote the significance of making practice and process within contemporary visual arts. It supports exceptional UK-based artists and makers to develop their creative ideas independently, enabling them to, as I said, experiment, learn and take risks. This eighth edition launches a new collaboration with Art Fund and a partnership with Aberdeen Art Gallery, who have hosted a dedicated curatorial role for the project, which is humbly myself. The exhibition also includes uh, a national tour. So this exhibition opened in Gerald Space in London, traveled to Newland Art Gallery in Cornwall of the summer, and is now here at Aberdeen Art Gallery. So far, speaking of the tour, each presentation um, has been slightly different and is aimed to respond to the context of the venue that has been presented in. 
in Jeru space, the commissions were presented by themselves and they were really kind of allowed the space to shine. In Ulanar Gallery, alongside the commissions, there was a selection of works by makers from the Southwest. And the show was aiming to generate conversations between makers and kind of different, explore different ideas around making processes. And here in Aberdeen, in order to respond to the context of the Aberdeen collection, we've displayed pieces from different areas of the collection alongside each commission. This was, again, a response to these narratives around making, which span across history. And it was also an opportunity to show objects from the collection that haven't been on display for a long time, if at all. It was a very interesting process, which included not only the curatorial staff here at Aberdeen Art Gallery, but also really kind of put the Gerald Arfant Makers Open artists in the center of it. So each artist had an opportunity to pick objects from the collection to complement their commission. And I think because all the three of us are here today, it would be really nice to kind of go a bit in depth into the process and what's that, what has that looked like for each of you and to talk a bit more about Cecilia's commission in particular and the piece from the collection that complements it. So I guess my first question will be to Cecilia and just to kind of ask you a bit more about how that process was for you, kind of digging a bit deeper into the Aberdeen collection. Have you worked with museum collections before and kind of what is your impression of them in America and the UK? I should probably also mention that because of sort of the spread of the artists across the UK, it was kind of almost impossible to get everyone in to view the collection in person. So we engaged in conversations online and using our online resources to make this happen, which is one way of doing things, definitely. If we had a bit more time and space and funding, we could have we could have instigated things in a different way. But I think the way we've done it has worked out incredibly, but I'm partial <laughs> because I'm a curator of the show. So I'll over to you, Cecilia, um, to tell us a bit more about your experience. The aspect of pairing our works for the Jerwood Makers Open with a piece from the Aberdeen Collection was really exciting for me because part of my interest in working with textiles is correlating what I do now with the history of textiles and thinking about the processes and the technologies that have been developed over the tens of thousands of years that humans have been interacting with textiles as a medium and either re-enlivening them now. Many of these processes used to be quite omnipresent, especially when people had to make textiles in a domestic sense rather than an industrial sense. Our relationship to textiles now is so different than it has been historically. Whenever we want a textile now, we just go out to the shop and purchase one. But in other eras, if you wanted a piece of textiles, they were really quite precious. Um, you either had to make the textile yourself, and that's not even to say you only had to weave the cloth. You had to also harvest whatever fiber you're going to use. You had to then process that fiber. You had to spin that fiber. And then you had to construct the piece of textile from that fiber. And so... It's really easy to forget from our position now how how much labor, how much skill and how much creativity 
has gone into the production of textiles throughout human history. A really pivotal book for me was the women, it's called Women's Work, The First 20,000 Years by Elizabeth Whalen Barber. And I read that maybe five, six years ago. She's an archaeologist um, and she was really interested in studying textiles from the viewpoint of archaeology because textiles are so vulnerable to decay. They often get overlooked in comparison to things like stone or bronze. And so her perspective was that the skill of those practitioners isn't really even acknowledged within archaeology precisely because the evidence of it is harder to find. And so she was really motivated to provide evidence that the technology of textiles was as important, if not more important, than those other mediums. It's just that they get overlooked and then how that impacts the role of women throughout history, the discussion of their contributions and skills. And so I was really appreciative to look through the collection at Aberdeen and just dive into, I just had a look at the archive just now, when you type the word textile in, you get almost 3000 results. So it's really quite a range of things to choose from. The first items I was attracted to were the really historical, just real scraps that must have been preserved in a peat bog or something like that, really ancient pieces. But those presented quite a number of uh, conservational constraints. And then I was looking at the samplers with the alphabet and the imagery that was more functioned around education around and when girls are coming of age to ensure that they have the skills necessary to oversee a household. But what I was really attracted to was a tabard, which was made during the late 19th century in China. And I just felt such a strong correlation between the aesthetic properties that were shown in the garment. I don't know if it was on behalf of the commissioner, perhaps the emperor uh, wanted these aesthetics to all exist together. So what I was attracted to mostly was the combination of um, curvaceous and floral motifs alongside the geometric stripes and shapes existing together in the same piece of embroidery. So that perhaps may have been a style that was existing within the court, but perhaps it was down to the uh, expressions of the individual artisan. But either way, it strongly correlates with the type of embroidery that I use, which is called Bargello, which, depending on which pattern you're using, can express both of those types of line. And so I thought aesthetically, it was really quite, it echoed a lot of the properties that my works exhibit. But then also conceptually, and you find this is often the case with imperial powers, the use of embroidery showed a lot of the the wealth or the power of the ruler and their empire. And so within the tabard, you have someone utilizing the process of embroidery to express devotion or supplication to the emperor and the empire. And part of what I was thinking about with my work was also these expressions of power and more through the idea of myth, but using historical narratives and then applying them to today and thinking about how we can use our interpretations of historical myths and then see parallels with the narratives that we use to discuss today's world 
in terms of politics. And, and so there was this synergy between the types of stories the embroidery was being used to tell in the tabard, as well as the types of stories that I was trying to tell, or at least to investigate or question within the embroidery that I made for the exhibition. While you're talking about it, can you give us a brief description of your commission um, for those who haven't had a chance to see it in person? Yeah, so the artwork is called Eternal Myth and the Poetry of the Cosmos, Fate, Future, Suture. And it is a triptych, so three separate panels. The panels are two meters high each and about 85 centimeters wide. So they reference more or less the human form. You have a relationship to each panel uh, as you're standing in front of it. And each panel represents one of the three fates from Greek myth, but also you see these analogous characters in other Norse mythology, other mythologies around the world. They were responsible for spinning the thread of life at the moment of birth, measuring the thread of life during the course of one's existence, and then cutting the thread of life at the time of death. So each one of the sisters was responsible for one of those actions. And they were perceived as having power even over the gods. So they were quite potent in terms of their position within the hierarchy of myth structures. And so I just, especially because the um, application period for Jerwood was right in the middle of the pandemic, it felt like a really uh, important time to reflect a bit upon our position uh, as a species. Yeah, mostly as a species. And perhaps because the tool that the was already established within the myth was thread, it seemed like embroidery was a really good way to explore that myth further, um, to keep that material sense the same, and then use the composition to kind of represent each one of those sisters within the triptych. Can I just say that I've, um, I mean, I've, I've obviously known this, but maybe it wasn't at the fore of my mind that each piece from the triptych was responding to the human body. And now that you mentioned that, it's just and talking about that synergy between um, the triptych and the tabard. It's really interesting because the tabard is a garment that is designed to be worn on the human body. And we have presented it on a mannequin. So this sort of like connection about the human body and, and kind of embroidery on it and within it, it's it's really interesting. And it's something that's happened all throughout this project. Certain things have just sort of come together and, and gravitated towards one another, even when you're not intentionally planning of them doing so. So that's really yeah, nice. Yeah, so interesting. I haven't really made that connection either. <laughs> Speaking of the tab art, Morna, can you tell us a bit more of it from your perspective as um, curator for applied art and maybe kind of put it in the context of our collection and especially kind of the East Asian focus of it. So in our um, Aberdeen Archives Gallery and Museums collection, uh, we have more than 250 Chinese applied artworks uh, dating from the 7th century to the 20th century. Some of the highlights include 
um, colosony enamel vessels, lacquerware and porcelain as well. So James Cromer Watts, he was born in 1862 and he was an architect, enamelist and jeweller um, born in Aberdeen. And he amassed a vast collection of decorative art from overseas, including Chinese lacquerware, metalwork, ceramics, carvings and textiles. After his death, many of these objects were bequeathed to Aberdeen City Council, and his bequest amounts to almost half of our Chinese decorative art collection. So the, the Chinese um, silk tabard that was selected by you, Cecilia, uh, from our collection that's on display in the, the Gerwood Art Fund Makers Open exhibition, that was acquired as part of the James Cromer Watt bequest. And as you've mentioned, it's heavily embroidered in silk threads and it features dragons, birds, trees and flowers as well. The square design with the bird on the front centre and, and the back centre of the tabard, that imitates a Qing Dynasty rank badge, which is also known as a Mandarin square. Um, and these were worn to indicate civil, military or imperial rank from the Ming Dynasty in 1391 until the end of the Qing Dynasty in 1911. And this um, Chinese tabard that, that we have on display actually has a bird on it, which indicates it was worn by a civil official. And there were nine different ranks and the crane on this garment indicates that the wearer was the highest rank as well. And then there are also dragons embroidered on the garment. Um, and those are, of course, very significant um, in Chinese culture and mythology and are an imperial creature symbolising strength and power. And Cecilia mentioned earlier, of course, about the sort of imperial connections with, with the tabard as well. So it is, a, it is a lovely piece and it's, it's just great to be able to um, put it on display in this exhibition and, and let our visitors see it um, sort of up close. I want to take you back to the moment where I came to you and I was and, and I said, Morna, I think Cecilia wants the tabard. What were your kind of feelings and thoughts kind of from the very first time where we pulled it out? in our museum centre, um, Aberdeen Treasure Hub, to the moment when we installed it in the gallery space and kind of saw it in all of its glory. Yes, it, it was not a piece that I was actually familiar with and I, it was boxed up at the time. So it was quite exciting, actually, to um, open the box and get it out. And also because it's silk, I wasn't sure how what sort of condition it would be in as well and whether or not we might be able to display it. But it's actually in remarkably good condition. And the colours um, in the stitching are still remarkably good as well. So it obviously hasn't been worn to, or displayed too much in bright sunlight in the past. So for its age, it was actually in, in fantastic condition, which was a, a big relief um, <laughs> so that we knew we could actually display it. And I think as well for me, um, I've been researching our East Asian collection over the past four years. And that collection review was sparked off by our involvement in a Scotland-wide project led by National Museum Scotland that was mapping out all the East Asian collections in Scottish museums and galleries. So that project identified over 25,000 objects from China, Japan and Korea that have been collected by museums across Scotland. And during that project, we also benefit from training courses and visits by staff from National Museum Scotland who, and they were able to provide insights into some of um, the 
Chinese and Japanese objects that we have in our collection. And through that project and doing the collection review, I had been really keen to publicise our East Asian collection more and to be able to um, show pieces from it um, more as well to the public and to our visitors. So it was just fantastic when Cecilia happened to choose an item from the East Asia collection. It was just fantastic then to think, well, actually, it's such a beautiful piece and it's just so beautifully um, embroidered as well. And it's just been wonderful to have that opportunity to put it on display. And then, of course, we had to think about what kind of mannequin we were going to display it on and, and how to display it as well. So that was quite interesting too. And I think the display case that was selected for it as well, because you can see into the sides of the display case as well as in the front. So visitors are able to see the back of the embroidery as well as the front, which is, is really great because on the front, the, the front is split down the middle. So the square on the front um, with the crane embroidered in it, you can see sort of two halves of it at the front, but there's also sort of two neckties that are hanging down as well. And then on the back of the embroidery, through the sides of the display case, visitors can see the back of the embroidery and they can see the entire square embroidery with the crane in it without the split down the middle as well, which I think is is really interesting for visitors as well. So I was absolutely thrilled um, that we were we've been able to get get this piece out um, and and to put it on display as well. Cecilia, what were your thoughts when you first entered the gallery? Um, just for a bit of context, Cecilia was one of the artists who got to spend about a week just before the opening of the show painting the bespoke mural she did for her commission piece. And she came in in a really interesting moment of the install where the collection items were in place, but nothing else really was. And um, so it must have looked quite peculiar at the time, but the tabar was already in with kind of all of its glory. So how did you feel when you first saw it um, in person? Yeah, I mean, it was remarkable. The images online, I think there you sent a few detail images, Svetlana, which was helpful for me from... London to be able to see more closely what was happening within the embroidery. But yeah, as you're saying, Warna, the colors are just extraordinary. It makes me curious to, to have seen it when it was new, just in the curiosity to know whether any of the colors were more vibrant because particular colors within textiles are quite susceptible to fading. I think blues and reds. And even though it's quite vibrant as it is today, it just makes me so curious what it was like when it was brand new. And the other thing that I noticed when I saw it up close was all the, I keep using the word synergy or correlation, um, but it, it's, it's just, there's no other way to describe it. The synergy between the colors and motifs that I used in my work with the choices of the creator of the tabard. And I just love examples like that where you can see, you know, I think we feel very contemporary um, and, and as though contemporary art is different than what's made historically. But then I remember visiting Pompeii, for example, and seeing mosaics on the ground. And if you saw those aesthetics, presented as contemporary art, you wouldn't even question it. And so looking at these historical objects really allows us to reach back and connect with creators from hundreds, thousands of years ago 
And yeah, for me, it just makes you a bit more humble in terms of, yeah, I don't think we're doing anything that much different than people have done for millennia. It's just a continuity of the impulses of all the creators that have come before us. And I, I really love finding those moments of connection. And I feel like art objects really can do that in a really special way. So yeah, it was, it was really excited to see the Tabard in the same space as my artworks, because it's a piece that I sort of selected intuitively and then to see it all kind of come together. Yeah. It's quite moving. It's such an interesting point that you've just made because contemporary is such a elusive term because it always is rooted in the perspective of whoever is thinking about what is contemporary. And in a hundred years time, your works will be in a, maybe like in a similar position of where this tabard is to us now. So essentially both your commission and this, this um, piece are to be, <laughs> to make upon, but like woven in the history of, of textile making in, in actually in a lot of very, similar ways. From a curatorial perspective, another thing that was really important to me when making the decision to include objects from the collection into the show was that entry point for visitors. Aberdeen Art Gallery has a very versatile audience base from professionals and makers and in a variety of different mediums to students, to families, to elderly people and, and citizens of Aberdeen. So I think the collection is something that everyone is familiar with and, and appreciates and kind of making that link with the Makers Open Commissions, which do currently fall under the label of contemporary um, and might, you know, might come across as something that is maybe not as familiar to audiences I think it was a really nice entry point into into the show and just sort of demonstrating that those conversations about materials and the impulses of, of making and taking care are not anything new. They've existed all throughout time. And um, we're just sort of continuing that narrative, really. So, yeah, that was that was really nice that we were able to make that happen. Just talking about textile histories. In general, from from your perspective, Morna, kind of what is your your response to to Cecilia's thoughts? Yes, absolutely. Well, going back to the tabard, I think there's a few sort of unknowns about its history as well, and um, because unfortunately we don't know a lot of the reasons why James Cromer Watt collected most of the items that he bequeathed to us. And so we don't know who who originally wore that tabard. We don't know why it was made for them. Um, we don't have any information about that at all, um, which lends, I suppose, an, a sort of a, even more of an air of mystery in a sense as well. And then also we need to do more research. There's quite a lot of symbolism in the images that have been embroidered on it. So I'd like to spend more time doing some more research into that. And we also need to do more research to work out whether it would have been worn by a man or a woman as well, because depending on the way that the bird is facing um, and other factors could be either a man or a woman who wore it. And it's, it's not 100 percent certain yet. So that's another piece of information that we, we need to look for. And I think textiles are particularly 
really sort of fascinating from that point of view because because they have been worn by a person and in this case they have been embroidered which would have taken I can't even imagine how long it would have taken to do such an intricate embroidery as well and so not knowing who wore it or who made it um, at the moment is yes it, it leaves it open to the imagination in many ways and I think Cecilia's work's very imaginative as well and so yeah, I think they definitely, the pieces all resonate together for sure in the exhibition. And I think in terms of textile histories in general, Cecilia mentioned about our um, embroidered samplers collection at the beginning of the podcast. And that's another area of the collection that I've been researching recently as well. And those are really interesting sort of embroidered, um, almost historical documents, if you like. And they provide insights into the lives of the girls who sewed them and the, the social, political, religious environment in which they lived as well. And so that's another area of, of our textile collection that's of great interest at the moment. And it's that's been really good to kind of delve into that a bit more and find out a bit more about the symbolism and the motifs that have been sewn on them and what they meant at the time, because they're, they're, obviously they're, they're contemporaries in the sort of 17th, 18th, 19th century their contemporaries were able to almost read their sampler. So they saw um, different motifs that were sewn on it and they were able to um, know what that said about the girl who'd sewn it. Um, so about her character, about um, her religious beliefs. So they were not explicit, but they were implied by the, the different strawberries or different types of flowers and other things that were, were sewn on them. So again, that's another example of where... It's more than the sum of the parts. So, yes, it's an embroidery. Yes, it's got alphabets and numbers and, and um, different images on it. Um, but there's more than that. There's another whole layer of meaning beneath that. It's the same with the tabard. You can look at it as a, a beautiful piece of embroidery. But then if you look at the symbolism of it and, and the square on the front and so forth, then you can tell more of a story about uh, about the piece. And there will be more layers below that as well, still to be uncovered as well. So I think that textiles, as, as Cecilia said earlier, that they are very fascinating. You know, they're stretching right back to the sort of, you know, earliest um, human life and then right through to the um, contemporary times as well. And it, I just kind of feel like it's all the same sort of continuum in a sense as well. And I just, yeah, I think there's just so much history and so much that can be implied from looking um, at pieces as well. I think time is another kind of very important thread, uh, a very important topic that is kind of coming through as well. And I know, Cecilia, you were talking about, you were thinking about time when you were making your commission in, in a few different ways. And, you know, one of them was kind of the time it takes to produce textiles and embroidery, but also kind of like the wider scope of like cosmological time from myth to present time. Can you want to talk a bit more about that? Yeah, so I I come from a textiles background in a sense. Um, my mother's a seamstress, and so I grew up sewing and being creative within textiles. But then when I went on to study fine art, I uh, worked with painting. And then once I transitioned into using textiles as my primary medium for my art practice, something that 
stood out to me in contrast to paintings is that within, particularly within the types of textile processes that I use, they really function as a demarcation of the time that it took to make the works themselves. Um, so with painting, the time is just a bit hidden because you can always mask layers with other layers. You never know what has happened in a layer previously. Time is a bit distorted. It's almost like going through a wormhole or something. Um, you can tell when a painting is very finely detailed, but there's no real sense of being able to see an expanse of individual, relatively consistent markers of units of time. Something that I find analogous is a calendar. Um, you can, if you look at those kind of annual calendars on the wall in offices often, you can see the whole year represented in these tiny black boxes, and you can really get a sense of time as it exists over a year. And for me, within the embroideries, each stitch kind of functions in that way. So you can really feel almost viscerally time as you're, for me, as you're looking at embroideries. Because it's all one surface, there's nothing being covered by anything else. And so it's just inescapable, I think. Not only time as it relates to textiles, as it relates to previous creators throughout history, but also time as it is represented in the manipulation of the materials. And then for me as the creator, time, yeah, is just inherently part of the process. So I've really appreciated that about textiles as opposed to painting, how present that concept of time is within my textiles practices. That is so interesting. And it just adds another layer to, to already such a kind of rich work. Obviously, you kind of work in, in quite an abstract, with, with, with abstract visual language. How much of, of those ideas do you hope that visitors pick up? From, from looking at your work or are you quite open to them like reading it in their own way and finding their own interpretations? Yeah, I'm always all for people having their own relationship to my work. Part of the asset within abstraction is that people can bring their own narratives and their own histories to the work and have their own interaction with it. I think that's really precious and never something that I would take away from viewers. I, particularly within the Jerwood work, I made some decisions in the early stages in order to convey certain attributes along each panel. So each panel represents one of the sisters, and through that sister, it's looking at a, a particular moment in a person's life. So the youngest sister, which is the panel all the way on the left, um, she's the one that's spinning the thread. And so that panel is all focused around birth and early development. Um, and it just so happened that my sister had a baby at the time that I was working on that. And so it's the, it's the closest proximity I've had to very young babies. And it just struck me how complex that initial period of life is. And so within that work, I tried to kind of capture that. The palettes across each panel, um, I found it easiest to identify a key word that would drive the color choices. So 
the youngest sister around birth, the keyword that I chose for that was gentle. And I found that that was helpful because the colors that I use within or the yarn that I use within my embroidery practice comes in over 400 colors. So you have this incredibly broad palette. And so with such a broad range of colors, you can't use something as simple as light or dark or you had to I had to get more specific in terms of the emotion that was being conveyed with the keyword. Um, And so I found that gentle allowed me to incorporate colors that even had maybe a lighter or darker hue. You can have more contrast, but as long as they felt gentle, that's how I would select the works for the youngest sister panel, the one about birth. The central panel, um, the keyword was vibrant. And again, it's kind of more of an expression of emotion or sentiment rather than the maybe the more analytical qualities of the color. And the central panel is the kind of apex of life. And so it's when the sister is kind of measuring the thread. So there's no action being taken upon the life. Um, They're just kind of allowing the life to exist and express. And so it's really trying to capture that moment after you've grown and you're able to kind of execute and be active and express those qualities that you have to contribute to the world. And so really reaching outwardly. And I find that palette to be really quite impactful um, on the central piece. And then the palette all the way on the right, the keyword was dark, which can be an analytical attribute of color. But I also find it to refer to something quite emotional as well. So the last panel is around the eldest sister who cuts the thread of life at the time of death. So I thought a lot about the third sister um, because on one hand, there's really a lot, we almost know nothing about death or at least what happens after death. But at the same time, in contrast to early life or even middle life, at least it's a certainty. We do have some clarity around the fact that when death occurs, you leave one plane of existence and you become something else or nothing. But at least you are, it's almost like a binary situation, which does give us more clarity than the situations of middle life or birth, which while we live through them and we see them happen, there's something uh, comprehensible about binaries where it's either one or the other. Um, And so in that way, I realized that there's actually quite a lot more structure to death than there is to middle life or birth. And so I tried to use the composition and the palette in order to convey that, yeah, that division and the not knowing. Um, And I guess the final thing I'll say about it is that alongside the palettes that I selected for each panel, I also selected certain motifs. The type of embroidery that I use is Bargello and It uses vertical stitches to create repeating patterns and motifs. And I almost think of the patterns themselves as a painter would think of tubes of paint. Um, So you can kind of apply them or manipulate them or combine them um, to create other effects. And so I selected different motifs to implement in the different panels, again, that would reinforce the characteristics of each sister throughout the triptych.
that's amazing and and so much so much detail and thought has gone into every single choice that you've made while you were talking i was thinking about being in the position of of morna as someone who is a curator and kind of keeper of not only objects but histories and we just sort of spent a bit of time talking about the tabard and all the kind of uncertainties around the choices that were made when the garment was made and worn and kept for you as a curator who not only has to look after um, historic objects but still works with contemporary artists and in new work how how do you preserve that context and how do you collect those histories around the work that we acquire as a museum collection so that a curator a hundred years from now looking at a piece that we collected today would be able to kind of interpret it and and think about it in a context. Yes, I think our database is very important in, in this respect. So um, when I'm acquiring any work, be it historical textiles, historical costume or contemporary work from artists, I'm always trying to capture as much information about the artist and about the work um, on our database. Um, so there are, are various different fields on the database where we can include that information. And I think it's just so important to keep a note of everything, because as you say, while I'm working here, you know, I could be having things in my in my head that I found out about, about objects. But unless I write them down um, in the database or in the artist files, then that they would be lost um, for for the people in the future. And as you say, in 100 years, 200 years, 500 years time, when, um, you know, the curators of the future are, are at work, um, yes, it's, it's just vitally important that they're able to to know um, as much information as possible about about all the objects, really. Um, and it's always exciting for me if um, I look into a, a database record and there's not much information, then if I'm able to go back to, say, a paper file, for example, um, in our archive room or in our artist files, and then you discover um, some, you know, a, a huge amount of extra information and it just puts the objects in context. So the role of the curator is so much more than what it looks like on the outside. You don't just put exhibitions together. There's so much administrative and thinking behind it. Just sort of speaking about um, joining the dots and connecting kind of pieces to one another, just to give a bit of context before when we were kind of plotting out this this project, I went to Morna as an expert um, in our applied arts collection with kind of a list of topics that were important in Cecilia's commission. And she came back to me with a list of uh, very um, interesting objects from the collection that she thought might be in some way connected to Cecilia's work. And what happened um, consecutively is that I sent that list to Cecilia and she actually came back to me with her own list of things that she'd seen on our e-museum which you can find on our website. So it was a very much a conversation between the three of us. Um, but Morna, do you mind saying a bit more about what was on that initial list and, and kind of what else is there in our collection that does also speak to Cecilia's commission in one way or another? Yes, absolutely. So once I got the list of themes from Cecilia and I was able to sort of dig into our collection, I found some really um, interesting pieces. And I think, as Cecilia mentioned earlier, the fact that you 
changed sort of from painting into textiles um, and the sort of intersection between those two disciplines. And um, I found in our collection two embroidered garden scenes um, that were worked in the 1930s by Margaret Winifred Simpson. And she was an sort of avid sewer who came from Elgin in the northeast of Scotland. And these garden scenes that she embroidered, she gave them sort of further realism by she by painting background colours behind the needlework as well, which is quite similar to what Cecilia's done with her works that are on display with the, um, painting the mural behind them as well. So they're really beautiful um, embroideries. And then the, the the aspect of Greek mythology in Cecilia's work as well. Um, so we have a collection of ancient Greek coins and they're decorated with depictions of the god Zeus as well. And then also in Cecilia's work, asking, sort of looking at ancient myths and then contemporary fake news as well and asking the question, what is it about humans that allows us to keep believing things proven to be false? And I thought that was a really interesting theme in Cecilia's work as well. And then we've got sort of mythological figures in our European porcelain collection as well. So sort of Neptune, Juno, um, Cupid, Jupiter, um, all these sorts of people as well. So that's sort of tying in with the sort of ancient myths as well. There are a lot of connections there. And then also Cecilia was talking earlier about the link between sort of cosmos and space and time and textiles as a record of the passing of time. I've mentioned our embroidered samplers already, and obviously that was a form of control for girls to kind of keep them occupied and to use up their time so that they didn't have time to get into mischief and do other things. And then we also have a Jupiter embroidery by Isabel McIntosh and also a tapestry called Phases of the Moon by John Maxwell in our, our collection that also, I think, resonate very much with um, Cecilia's work. And then in terms of the, the history of labour and sort of labour as resource and humans as resources as well, we have quite a large industrial collection here uh, relating to the granite shipbuilding and oil and gas industries, which are particularly relevant here in Aberdeen. And so we also have a small collection of objects relating to trade unions, banners, membership badges, and also a National Union of Journalists strike t-shirt as well. So that whole history of labour um, really, I think, resonates very much with our um, industrial uh, collection here too. And then moving on with that exploration of sort of labour and resources as well, I was very much drawn to Legroom Hanging by Freddie Robbins in our collection. She explores the female obsession with usefulness in her work. And so sort of ordinary machine knitted jumpers, but then the sleeve sort of comes out of the neck or, or arms have become legs and that sort of thing. So they're imperfect and they're actually unsuitable for use. So they're not useful in a sense as well. And we have the legroom hanging that we have is, is a really interesting textile piece. It's a knitted jersey with um, legs instead of arms. And then lastly, I know, Cecilia, that you, you work in Bergello Stitch. So we have an embroidered dust jacket for Ruskin's Valdorno in our collection. And that's been made using various stitches, including Bergello Stitch as well. And that was his book about uh, 10 lectures on Tuscan art. So when I did dig deeper into our collection, there were quite a lot of connections, I would say, with, with your work, Cecilia. And, and that was really interesting to kind of 
find those links. We've got such a large collection and it's really nice to have, have time to delve into it and really um, look for those connections and look for those objects that are very different from each other, but yet very much chime with the themes in your work as well. So essentially, we could have curated an entire show around Cecilia's commission and it still would have been absolutely incredible. Yes, that would have been really fun to do as well. (laughs) No, if only only we had a bit more space. Just to sort of wrap up things, Cecilia, do you want to tell us what you're doing now? What's coming up for you in the next couple of months? Yeah, so I've got a solo exhibition of new work opening at Canada Stevens Gallery in Chichester. Um, so it'll open on the 28th of January and it'll close the 11th of February. And it's my first exhibition presenting embroideries al- alongside weaving. So weaving is a process that I've introduced into my practice over the last year. And so, yeah, I'm really excited to present the two processes alongside each other. And then similarly, I'll be showing at Collect again with Canada Stevens Gallery. Um, That's going to be at Somerset House in London, the 3rd through the 5th of March. So if you happen to be in Chichester or in London during those times, I hope to see you there. Thank you so much. And I'm sure that now that um, the people of Aberdeen have seen your work, they'll definitely keep an eye out in the future because there's some very bright and exciting things in there for you i'm sure thank you so much for your time uh, in uh, engaging in this conversation i think it was very very interesting to kind of delve a little bit deeper into those choices and that research and conversation that three of us have been engaged in for the past more than six months now and I hope our listeners have enjoyed Joe Art from Makers Open. Uh, and if they haven't seen it yet, this is a little prompt to do so. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Svetlana, Cecilia and Morna. That was so interesting. We hope you have enjoyed this episode and it has inspired you to see the exhibition for yourself. It's open until Sunday the 5th of March at Aberdeen Art Gallery on School Hill. Remember to hit that subscribe button to never miss an episode of Gather Round. Have a great weekend and until next time, bye.